This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good morning, you're listening to Pressing Matters, a show where we go beyond the headlines and explore issues driving the press. I'm Philip C. In today's show, I speak to Vikram Khanna, Associate Editor at The Straits Times Singapore, on how the banking turmoil unfolded and whether we expect to see more shocks in the coming days ahead. Vikram, thanks a lot for joining us. I mean, it's really been a roller coaster of events in the past two weeks. I wanted to get your impression right. What was your initial reaction of the Silicon Valley Bank bank run? Did you think it was an isolated incident? I have to admit that uh, at first I did. I thought that this was a special case. It had a very concentrated depositor base of VCs and startups. And uh, these people are very highly interconnected. Even one tweet can sort of, you know, spread the news about the bank to thousands of depositors. Also, a very high proportion of the depositors were uninsured because they had deposits in excess of 250,000 US dollars, which is the limit for deposit insurance. Now, that is not common, but I mean, there are other banks who also have a large number of uninsured depositors, but I thought this was a special case. Also uh, saw that they had a large amount of unrealized losses on their bond portfolio. The long, they had put a lot of their assets into long-term treasuries, which they had not, which they had uh, not hedged for interest rate risk. So I thought this was another sort of special case. I did not realize that, in fact, the uh, amount of unrealized losses on banks in banks' assets exceeded 600 billion totally, according mm-hmm. to FC, FDIC data. I did not focus on that fact. But the moment that data became available, or the moment I saw that data, I began to realize that this is not just a one bank problem or a two bank problem. There's also the signature bank, which is a crypto lender, which yep. also had a high uh, concentration of depositors uh, among the crypto community. So I began to realize that there may be more to the story than just these two banks. And the $600 billion loss realization, when did that number unearth itself? I mean, how big was the time gap between when we saw the, the downfall of Silicon Valley Bank versus this whole realization of the systemic loss, right, of the $600 billion then? You see, the, the, this data was put out by the FDIC. It had been around, but nobody had focused on it mm. because nobody had uh, you know, re- realized that there was this problem on such a scale. Uh, and the moment it brought down a bank, that's when people began to focus on it. So it is after the, after the collapse of, of the Silicon Valley Bank that I think people really started to focus on the unrealized losses that may exist in other banks. So you must have not been surprised then when the Fed intervened quite relatively fast, right, in the process. I mean, many people were heartened with the fact that actually authorities did intervene very fast, offered that, you know, support uh, and expanded the the limit of the deposit. So were were you perplexed that they responded so fast or did you think, oh, this was natural and expected in view of all the lessons learned of the past? No, they had to respond fast. They had to respond before the markets opened on Monday. Mm -hmm. So they had to come up with a plan by Sunday, which they did. The the only thing, though, was that that plan was limited. For one thing, they they insured all deposits, even exceeding 250,000, of these two banks, Signature Bank and Silicon Valley Bank. They did not extend the deposit insurance, the increase in the deposit insurance to all other banks. That's number one. Number two, the Fed opened this new 
lending facility called the BTFP, what's it, Bank Term Funding Program. By the way, the acronym is the same as Buy the Fed Put, BTFP. Anyway, so they, they had this, this lending facility, which allows banks to pledge their collateral of treasuries and mortgage securities, and they will get the full value of those as if they are on 100 cents to the dollar, even if the market price is like 70 cents to the dollar. So that put a backstop to banks uh, that had these unrealized losses. But the trouble is that a lot of the mid-sized banks in the U.S. do not hold a lot of treasuries. Most of their assets are in loans. Mm. So that did not cover these guys. That uh, It covered the pe- people who had high proportions of uh, treasuries in among their assets, but the majority of the mid-sized banks do not. So, so there were holes in the in the in the backstop that the Fed and the uh, Treasury put together. And fast forward to today, have we seen that intervention extend now to provide some support there on the loans? Because it, but it's a bit more complicated and tricky, right, to do that. Yeah, I mean, first of all, we don't really know how serious the credit risks are. We know that there's a lot of the banks are exposed, especially, for example, to commercial real estate, okay? We don't know exactly what the uh, what the level of distress is. Mm. What we do know is that there are a lot of deposits still continuing to leave uh, the banks. I mean, the one particular case that was highlighted was uh, First Republic Bank, which is a wealth manager, which also had a quite uh, heavily concentrated deposit base among wealthy people, well-connected people. Uh, so a lot of deposits were leaving from there, but many other banks are also facing losses of deposits. There's also this additional thing, which is that people began to realize that they can earn much higher yields by investing in treasuries or money market funds. They can earn four to five percent there, whereas with the deposits, the deposit interest rates were less a fraction of one percent. Right. Yeah. So why would you and and why would you continue to hold your deposits in the bank, paying you less than one percent, when you can earn risk-free, pretty much risk-free, uh, four to five percent? So that's another incentive for people to shift their deposits. So this is a problem. The the the, the hemorrhaging of deposits uh, is a continuing problem that they will need to tackle. And as we know, late uh, last week, um, the Fed did. Uh, raise uh, interest rates by another 25 bips. Were you surprised with that move, actually? Actually, that I was not surprised. Um, I think earlier there was speculation that it might raise by 50 basis points, right? Because it has talked tough on inflation and so on. But after this crisis, the banking crisis, I think 50 basis points is out of the question. So the the question was whether it'll do 25 or whether it'll do nothing, whether it'll just pause. I think if it were to pause, I think that would send a very bad signal. It would send a signal that the problem is really serious, is really serious, and it would probably increase the panic. And the second thing is that the Fed will lose some some of its credibility because it, it, it had pledged, you know, it had staked so much of its credibility on inflation control. And so to, to have to like given up by, by not raising rates at all, I think it would have dented that credibility. So, and there's also an additional factor that... Uh, because because of the banking crisis, the flow of credit started to slow down. Banks, you know, tended to tend to lend less when there when there's bank uh, banking stress. So that is the equivalent of a late rate increase. So and that this is the point that uh, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell also made that look, you know, lending is slowed down, so it's equivalent to uh, maybe a fifty basis point increase. So we don't need to do it. Yeah, and I guess Vikram, 
you know, when you cover this story, right, and it's, I get a sense that actually we expect more to come, isn't it? That That's the worrying part that we haven't got the full picture yet of yeah. how serious the situation is. Yeah. Do you assess that what we've seen so far is just the start of a whole avalanche of potential bank runs and challenges for especially regional banks in the US because the structure there is quite unique, isn't it, compared to other countries around the world? Yes. Well, I think you you could very well see new more bank failures. I mean, there are some banks that are losing deposits quite a rapid pace. Mm. But probably the more serious problem is is what's going to happen on the credit side. You know, when credit starts drying up, I mean, I think then you have the higher chances of a recession uh, and the the loan distress, particularly in the commercial real estate sector, sort of comes home to roost, you know. So I think that is a more serious problem and that could spread across the economy um, and even have global repercussions. And if there's a recession in the US, it could be quite serious if accompanied by banking problems and that could very much, very easily spread across the world. That's right. I think what you're saying here is, and you hear the conversation shift, right, from this whole belief in the early part of the year that we were going to do a soft landing to now the reality that it's very likely we'll end up with a hard landing. But Jerome Powell said that, you know, he will use all available available tools to make sure that the situation is calmer. What do yeah. you think are the tools that he could adopt potentially to avoid this challenging economic situation, right, we expect, especially in the second half? Well, I think the the main challenge he has is to basically restore confidence in the banking system. I think it's, I mean, he's acting a little, they're all acting a little late, but still, I mean, they have, they do have tools. Uh, one, of course, is the, the quantitative easing, you know, the, the Fed put, so to speak, uh, that is always there. The other is to, to expand regulation, particularly covering the SME banks, small and medium banks. Now, these guys have, have been let off pretty lightly when it comes to regulation. For one thing, they do not have to submit to annual stress tests. Okay. Mm-hmm. Secondly, the kind of stress tests that the Fed had had uh, had instituted did not really test for stress. I mean, the worst case scenario was a rise of bond yields to 1.5%. They had hit more than 4% already earlier this year. So what kind of stress are you testing? So I think they've got to revise that whole framework of stress testing. They've got to also shift the focus from looking only at large banks, which is the main focus of previous regulation, to also looking at the small and mid-sized banks. Now, if they make decisive moves in this direction, I think some confidence could be restored. Then there's the issue of deposit insurance. I think so far they've been reluctant to so insure all deposits. Many banks are lobbying for all deposits to be insured for a period of two years, but so far, they haven't. Uh, the the authorities haven't agreed to that, but that also carries a lot of risks. You know, there's uh, that means uh, you you basically create moral hazard. It means banks can do pretty much you know take any kind of wild risks. Yeah. There'd also be a danger of you know the the U.S. dollar because what might happen. Some analysts have said that if all deposits in the U.S. are insured, then people in other countries could move their deposits to the U.S. Right. Yeah. And that yeah. causes pro- problems elsewhere and pushes up the dollar. So that creates all kinds of problems. So there are risks there. But uh, basically, they'll have to do something to uh, to stop the deposit flight. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what it is, but they'll have to do something. We're heading into some messages and we come back. We continue our discussion with Vikram from The Straits Times. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. 
Thanks for staying tuned to Pressing Matters on the Morning Run. Today on the show, we speak to Vikram Khanna, Associate Editor of the Straits Times Singapore on the latest banking turmoil that has shaken the world. Now, Vikram, we talked at length of the US regional banks, but perhaps many of us started to take notice when we saw Credit Suisse under pressure, resulting in the takeover by UBS. Could you help us connect the dots to how did we shift from the smaller banks in the US to the global behemoth of Credit Suisse? I mean, how did it shift so fast, right, from Silicon Valley to Credit Suisse? I mean, they were totally isolated and very different reasons why both collapsed. Because it's well, a very different story, isn't it? Yeah, look, Credit Suisse is, is a different story. Credit Suisse, uh, this is the second largest bank in Switzerland. Yeah. It's, um, first of all, it's not really a commercial bank, except except in Switzerland, where it has a retail franchise. It's more a wealth manager. Uh, secondly, it's it's problems that have gone on for many years. And there's all kinds of problems. There's accounting irregularities. There's corruption in Mozambique. There's money laundering issues. There's terrible uh, toxic assets uh, you know, some of its big clients sort of went bust, Archigos Capital, for example. So there's a whole litany of issues that's been going on for many years. Now, th- th- these are not the sort of issues that afflicted Silicon Valley Bank or Signature Bank. What they have in common is deposit flight. Now, w- Credit Suisse lost many of its clients. They moved, they voted with their feet because the bank was badly managed and uh, was, was thought to be risky. These other guys uh, in Silicon Valley Bank, uh, they moved not because the bank had had made bad decisions on lending and so on, but because of the unrealized losses on the bond portfolio, yep. which they which they found out found out about, and then the word spread very quickly. And also, these were highly uh, highly well connected, interconnected depositors. Uh, so it's it's a different case. The causes are different, but the only thing they have in common is depositors leaving. And that's where I feel the worry is that we cannot connect the cases. So that's why people say, look, Silicon Valley doesn't affect us. Credit Suisse might. But the issue here is that it just jumps from one to the other, right? This loss of confidence driving deposit withdrawals can take place in many shapes and sizes, isn't it? It may yeah. be as a result of bad management on the side of Credit Suisse. One could be the way you kind of manage your treasuries on Silicon Valley side. So that's the problem, isn't it? That we don't know what will cause the next bank run, although it's, it is a function of essentially driving deposits out. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I think one point to note is that there, there is never only one cockroach, right? <laughs> so, I mean, a lot of the problems that uh, faced Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, people started looking to see who else might have the same problems, Yeah, you know? So people focused on that 600 billion of unrealized losses saying, oh, okay, who who else has unrealized losses? It turns out that they're quite a few. Most of them don't, but at least 10% of them do. So that that alone would be, uh, you know, a systemic crisis. So uh, so the Fed has backstopped that. But what's happened is that the, the remaining 90%, they still have credit issues. And if credit turns down and there's a recession, they'll face other problems. So this crisis will change its shape it's from a sort of a, a bond market related, a bond bubble bursting kind of crisis. It'll become a credit crisis, you know. So that's the danger. And that could have international repercussions. I think this is where I'm I'm so intrigued because if you if you reflect the conversations that took place in the quarter fourth quarter of last year, everybody was saying, look, the economy is running very hot. Um, It's doing extremely well. We expect weakening of the situation. We expect an incoming crisis to take place. You know, there is going to be some systemic risks 
uh, coming up. And yet we all feel very blindsided. You know, that's the thing that I think struck me in the sense that we all anticipated something yeah. could happen. By the same way, we never knew its shape and form. So hence, we couldn't form our response appropriately, right? It's, as you say, the Fed is still kind of articulating its response. I guess the issue then is that no matter how much scenario planning you plan and think of all the eventualities, it just could totally blindside you. Yeah, well, I think one problem is many people have suggested is that regulators tend to fight the last war, right? I mean, the last war was a credit issue. The 2008 global financial crisis was lending related. It started in you know in the real estate sector, and it, it's bad loans going bad, and, mm-hmm. and 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 it went on from there. This was not about loans going bad. I mean, Silicon Valley's uh, banks' uh, loan portfolio was quite quite all right. It was fine, in fact. Yeah. yeah. It was it was the problem here started in in the fixed income markets, the bond markets. It's the bond bubble that burst, basically. And the reason for that is the pace at which the Federal Reserve hiked interest rates went from zero to 4.5% in a year. I mean, this is the fastest rate hike in history, and including some jumbo rate hikes of 75 basis points each. Now, this has not happened before, and I think banks were not did not adjust quickly enough for this. And maybe, I guess, some of them didn't expect it. And that's why they didn't hedge, like Silicon Valley Bank did not hedge against interest rate risk. So I think the the whole nobody focused on on this risk, the interest rate risk of rates being hiked so fast, so fast, so fast, and the impact on banks of that. This hikes by the Fed have been going on for a year already, yeah. and the conversation is always centered around jobs versus inflation. Yeah. It's always just these two pillars, right? And yeah. and everybody seems very single minded that it's these two. Perhaps that's what I think about as a layman. Perhaps it's a bit more nuanced when the Fed thinks about it, but we get this impression that really it's a dual mandate uh, kind of objective by the Fed, whereas actually perhaps then we then criticize and say, why didn't the Fed think through all the other dimensions of risk that could have a trigger effect on these two core uh, considerations? Right. Actually, it's there's a triple mandate. The inflation is the primary mandate, unemployment is the second mandate, and financial stability is the third mandate. Mm-hmm. on which perhaps not enough uh, has been focused, not enough attention has been focused. Mm-hmm. And this is what has come up. I mean, this this crisis, if, if there is a sort of snowballing crisis, this started in the financial sector. It didn't start in the real sector. It didn't start because of inflation. I mean, it did indirectly because the Fed hiked because of inflation. But yeah. the proximate cause, the trigger, was stress in the financial system. Which then, you know, begs the question then, as we unfold and enter into the second quarter of the year, uh, how, how, do, how do readers think about the coverage then from your newspaper, right, moving forward? How, how are you going to shift the tone and conversation within Asian readers about this ongoing saga and development? Well, initially, uh, there was some concern that, oh, what about Asian banks? Have they been, have they, are, are they also going to be affected? And a lot of share prices of Asian banks fell. Even uh, even Malaysian banks, you know, you have Maybank and Public Bank and CIMB in Singapore too. Bank shares fell. Well, pretty much everywhere because when an industry gets into trouble, all the players get hit. Yeah. But I think that's. Uh, I think it's become quite clear that Asian banks are in a quite different situation. 
I think the governments have come out and the MAS in Singapore has come out to sort of explain that our banks are doing fine. Uh, the reasons for that are threefold, basically. Uh, one is that there's a lot of government ownership of banks in Asia, right? I mean, some of the biggest banks are government, like Maybank in Malaysia, DBS in Singapore, bigger banks in India, all the banks, all the big banks in China, all have high, high levels of government ownership. That's number one. Number two, the deposit bases are quite diversified. They don't have concentrated deposits like some of the banks in America, right? Yep. And thirdly, a lot of their assets are not in investments. They are in loans, okay? Now, those loans could later on face some problems, but at the moment, they don't face the same problem as Silicon Valley. They don't have huge unrealized losses on their bond portfolios. Mm -hmm. So that was the first concern. So that has pretty much been laid to rest. So Asian banks are pretty secure. But now the concern is shifting towards, you know, will this accelerate a recession? Will this lead to a credit crisis, which in turn will lead to a recession? And that will affect Asia much more. I mean, so that is, that is, uh, I suppose, the, the concern that people are starting to have. We're not there yet. We're not anywhere close to recession yet. But I think the risks have risen. That was Vikram Khanna, Associate Editor at The Straits Times Singapore. This has been Pressing Matters on the Morning Run. Coming up next is the 10 a.m. News Bulletin, followed by Enterprise, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.